Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Sick Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, <laughs> graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we're keeping it close to headquarters for the Rebel at Large. A <laughs> short adventure up the canyon to a once mining community, now a posh ski resort town. Today, we're going to do something a little different. A few weekends back, we went up to Park City to cool down from the hot summer weather and explored the historic Glenwood Cemetery there. We picked a few people that are laid to rest there, and we're going to share their stories with you. Before we get into the folks there, let's talk about the cemetery a bit. The town of Park City has two cemeteries. This is in Utah, so we know. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> well, the Park City Cemetery, which was set up for the town folk of the area, and then the Glenwood Cemetery, which was established by several fraternal organizations and provided them a place to lay to rest as well as their families. In 1885, Edward Theriot sold three acres to a group of men who were forming the cemetery for a total of $100. Which is just over three grand today. I don't think you could buy even one acre up there for $3,000. Yeah, it's got to be at least a million bucks an <laughs> acre in that area. Uh-huh. Well, he then donated another two acres, giving them a total of five acres for the cemetery. Yeah, 20 bucks an acre is what it came down to being. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and the house that's right on the corner of where the cemetery is, mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at their tennis court. Yeah. Do you really recognize all that? I did. Yeah. And it's like, there's all these like really high upscale hotels and apartments all around there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And then there's just this little quiet cemetery. Yeah. Well, fraternal organizations were a big thing back in the day. Park City was mostly made up of immigrants, and joining a fraternal organization gave them a sense of belonging. They also offered health insurance, as the mines did not offer it. They were able to get religious support from some of the groups, and they also provided a cost-effective location for the members and their families to be buried. Glenwood Cemetery is full of headstones from members belonging to groups like the Free and Accepted Masons, the Knights of Pythias, Oddfellows, the Elks, the Woodsman Order of the World, Loyal Order of the Moose, and the Ancient Order of United Workers. So I just had an idea. I mean, we've been to a lot of cemeteries, and they'll have the city cemetery will have sections in it mm -hmm. for these different organizations. I don't know of another cemetery where all these organizations came together to form their own cemetery. Yeah, I know they're out there. We've been in a couple that were Odd Fellows and Freemasons, more specifically. Yeah. But then we've been in other areas out there in Nevada to where each one has their very own cemetery, but they're right next door to the other. Yeah, and this one's like, I mean, we had to drive like, what, four or five miles to get to the next one. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it was close. Right, yeah. It was in the middle of the old part of town, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, as we walked around, we couldn't help but see all the different symbols carved into the headstones. The odd fellows have the three chain links. Mm -hmm. The headstone that looks like logs, they're usually for the woodsmen, mm -hmm. and the square and compass is for the masons. We even saw bull elk marking the resting spot of a member of the elks. Mm -hmm. The families were in charge of maintaining the resting spot of their loved ones were placed in, but as the mine started to shut down and Park City started turning into a ghost town, the cemetery started to fall into disrepair. By 1920s, burials started to decline as people were moving away to find work. 
Well, during the 1970s, the cemetery started to experience some vandalism. Yeah, I cannot understand why anybody would want to destroy a headstone. That's never made sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yep, ass hat. (laughs) Well, with over 900 folks laid to rest in the cemetery, the town people felt something needed to be done to preserve it. In the 1980s, a group of volunteers gathered together and a major restoration was done on the cemetery. They added a large iron gate, making it so no cars can drive through, and they built a steel fence around it to keep foot traffic down as well as keep animals out. There's kind of one of those, I don't know, L-shaped things that you have to kind of slide mm-hmm. into one way and then go the rest through to get in so you can't even take a bicycle anything like that. They were pretty smart about it. Yeah. I could have got a one-wheel in there, though. Yeah, you could have. You didn't no, even bring it. I didn't. They also got to work putting the headstones that had been knocked down back up. And then they started the tedious task of researching who was buried there and where they are placed. If they didn't have a headstone, a new one was made for them. They did a great job out there. Yeah, they're still working on making headstones for people because there's just so many there. Yep, ongoing project for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know what they charge for a headstone, but I'm sure it's not cheap. (laughs) Nope. Well, the cemetery is located up the mountain and is full of native trees and plants They only mow the area once a year in the late fall to give the plants enough time to reseed. They have around 40 different native plants in the cemetery. It's super pretty. I mean, we've been twice and it's always different when we go. Mm -hmm. There's a small stream that runs through it and beautiful quakey trees provide a lot of shade for most of the area. The vegetation is so thick that if you do go to visit, you need to make sure you have long pants and boots on. Mm Mm-hmm. While we were wandering around, we got a lot of those little seeds that stick to you Mm -hmm. all over our Um, pants and shoes. Yeah, I found some on my bag later (laughs) in the week. Yeah, and those things hurt. They'll kind of like dig into your pants and start poking you. Mm, They're survivors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Gypsy had gotten a book, uh, but it came in after we had done all the writing on this, which happens a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, she was just reading a spot in there that suggested the cost of a plot back then was averaging $10 up to $27 yeah. per plot. And the cost of a pick at the time would be around 5 bucks. So pretty damn affordable. You can't go to Home Depot and get a $30 pick and expect to go get a burial plot for 60 bucks. No, I know. Well, I mean, I was talking to somebody at work the other day, and they were saying that they had just purchased a plot in a cemetery, Mm -hmm. kind of pre-planning, and they had paid $8,000. Like, whoa. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Two grand seems to be an average around here. Mm -hmm. Plot. It's expensive. Yeah. Square footage, not square acreage. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, huh? Well, in 1981, the cemetery was placed on the National Historic Register. In 2016, the cemetery was acquired by the Park City Museum. They now do tours every Tuesday and Thursday, which cost about 15 bucks, which is 15 bucks in today's money still. Uh, We've not been on a tour yet, as we're usually working those days, but maybe one day we'll get a chance to get up there. Yeah. Uh, In September, they hold events where actors and actresses come out dressed in costumes and reenact some of the folks who are laid to rest there. Yeah, we went to one last night. We did, yep, at the uh, Taylorsville City Uh Cemetery. Tombstone Tales. Mm -hmm. 
And I also know that Jenny from the Ordinary Extraordinary Cemetery podcast is an actress in something like that in the cemeteries in Colorado, right? Yeah, I believe she does it up in uh, Central City. She just posted some pictures up there too. Yeah. So she had just done one. And they're gearing up to do the Adventures of Sleepy Hollow, right? Yeah, Sleepy Hollow deals. Mm-hmm. They'll be doing a tour in Colorado Springs and one in Denver as well. Yeah. So yeah, pull up uh, the ordinary extraordinary cemetery dot com. Yeah. Maybe I can find this stuff and I'll link it in the show notes where they're at. Yep. I I we're gonna go and I'm excited to go see it. Yeah, I know we'll be at least being able to do the Denver one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, now that you know some of the history about the cemetery, let's tell you some stories we were able to find about the people laid to rest in the area. The first area that we went to when we got to the cemetery was a resting spot for the Mawinney family. They are laid to rest in the Oddfellows section. Robert, the father of the family, had been a member for 25 years. He probably joined when he was rather young Mm -hmm. to be a member that long. Robert, or as he was called around camp, Bob, and Eleanor, who went by Ellen, immigrated to the United States from Ireland in 1875. They then made their way to Park City, arriving in 1877. By this time, they had two children, Mary C. and Agnes. Well, the couple had a total of 11 children, but by the time Ellen passed away, only six of them were still living. On October 5, 1880, their son John passed away at birth. Then 20 days later, four-years-old Agnes passed away. On May 6, 1888, one-and-a-half-year-old Rachel passed away. The three children were all laid to rest in the Park City Cemetery as the Glenwood Cemetery had not yet been created. On June 13, 1889, the couple lost their oldest child, Mary, at the age of 15. According to cemetery records, she passed away from dropsy. Today we know that as edema. Though we're not doctors, edema is when the body retains fluid. Dropsy was commonly associated with underlying issues regarding heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure, and malnutrition. When Mary passed away, the couple purchased a family plot in the Glenwood Cemetery. Mary was placed there, and in the same year, she was joined by John, Agnes, and Rachel when the parents had them exhumed and moved. On October 14, 1891, the family lost their son, Robert James, who was just 22 days old. Tragedy struck the family again when the fire of 1898 swept through Park City, burning down the family house. Rather than leave the area, they decided to stay and rebuild their house. The following year, Bob passed away at the age of 47 on May 24, 1899 from pneumonia. Ellen remained living in Park City until she passed away at the age of 68 on August 8, 1924. She is laid to rest with her family in a large plot Each headstone for the family has an inscription on it, but due to weather and age, I was actually having a really difficult time trying to read what any of them said, and Mm -hmm. I I hate not knowing what they say. I feel so, (laughs) like, empty when I walk away, you know? Right? It's like there was so much more. Mm -hmm. I just didn't get it. Yeah, because, like, the family took the time to think of that. They had to pay somebody extra money to put that on there, Mm -hmm. and then when it just disappears, it's kind of sad. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, tragic stories of families losing children were not uncommon during this time. As you wander around the cemetery, you can't help but notice all the headstones with limes on them, symbolizing the death of a child. Mm -hmm. The town of Park City may have had a lot of children pass away when it was first being settled, but one of the most tragic events to happen was the Dally West Mine explosion on July 15, 1902. 
34 miners were killed when two powder magazines exploded at the 1,200-foot level, according to the American Eagle. Just how the explosion was caused will probably never be known for certain, but it is probable that it was the result of a visit to the powder magazine by John Burgey, the powder monkey, and that he either took in a lighted candle or cigarette. It continues on saying, He dropped either his candle or a spark from his cigarette into the giant powder. And by the explosion which followed, his body was blown into atoms. Yeah, the news article was pretty mean to John. (laughs) (laughs) And they like went off on him like he knew he wasn't supposed to do this and yet he did it anyways. (laughs) Even though they are like, we don't really know what happened. We're We're going to blame him entirely. Yeah. And then we're going to just tear him to shreds. (laughs) Yeah. He's dead. Right. (laughs) Newspapers were so mean back then. Mm, they're probably the same now still. Yeah, that's true. I don't We really just don't read them. Read them. <laughs> <laughs> well, John McLaughlin was born in 1882 in Park City. When the explosion happened, he was around the age of 19 or 20. He spared no time getting to the mine shaft to help the men trapped inside. They were unsure of how many men were in the shaft, if they were still alive, and what they would find when they got down there. According to the Salt Lake Tribune... No sadder incident of the whole day was there than the death of John McLaughlin. He was but a boy, but was so brave a spirit that he made five trips down into the deadly poison of the mine to rescue his fellow men. On the last trip, he fell near the foot of the shaft, overcome with the gas, and there died. John was laid to rest next to his 52-year-old father and two-year-old brother. Michael Crowley, born in May 1871 in Missouri, came to Park City like so many others to try and make it rich. He was one of the poor miners to lose his life in the explosion at the age of 31. His wife purchased a plot and had a beautiful white headstone placed for him. Around the headstone is a wooden crib that is slowly rotting away. The posts are only a few feet tall, and if you're not careful, you could easily step on them. His headstone actually has a really cool design in it, and I'm not 100% sure what the association is of the symbol on his headstone. Mm. We'll post pictures, you guys, and if you know, let us know. <laughs> yep, at revelolarge.com. <laughs> well, John Nemo came to Park City from Scotland. He was working for the Dally West Mine on the day of the explosion. He refused to allow anyone to be lowered down the mine for fear the gases would kill more folks. The crowd pressured him into letting them down. He finally did so, and when they returned, they brought up with them an injured miner who was barely breathing. The man died a short while later, but folks began blaming John, saying if he had let them down sooner, more men may still be alive. But also more men may have died trying to rescue. Yeah. Well, John continued to live in Park City until he passed away on Valentine's Day, 1911, at the age of 61. John was born on January 1st, 1850, and came to Park City in 1882. While working in the mine, he contracted miners' consumption, and that is what ended his life. It's difficult to say if John made the right call or not, stopping the men from going into the mine, but like I said, you may have killed more people trying to save Mm -hmm. some people. Yeah. And they may have been already too poisoned from the gases to survive anyway. It's hard to say. Yeah, there was like an article they had posted about where they interviewed a doctor, And the doctor pretty much said, like, these guys died fairly quickly from the poison. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't even really know what to do for them once they came out. 
So one of the bodies is actually still in the mine, if I remember correctly. Is that right? They were unable to recover them or locate the person because some some of them got out through the backside. Hmm. Uh, but this one they weren't able to locate. So, hmm. yeah. Or it was also blown to atoms. Yeah. <laughs> some of the miners buried in the Glenwood Cemetery suffered more tragic deaths. Thomas Franson Brennan was born in Pennsylvania in June 16, 1858. We're not sure when he came to Park City, but what we do know is that on October 31st, Halloween, mm-hmm. 1885, 27-year-old Thomas was working at the Ontario mine. Around midnight, he was in the cage making his way up the mine with other miners for dinner. They got in the cage at the 1,000-foot level. Around the 600-foot level, Thomas passed out and fell out of the cage. His head got stuck between the cage and the wooden boards on the shaft walls. There was a crash in the cage, and when it finally stopped, his body was found at the station, and his head was found on the lower deck of the cage. He left behind a wife and two children. Terrible. Yep, he became the headless miner, not horseman. (laughs) <laughs> the headless miner of Park City. <laughs> yeah, on Halloween. Yeah, don't go around that mine on Halloween. He might be still be haunting. <laughs> well, Harriet Jane Nareva Truscott was born on February 10th, 1856 in England. She had a son, Arthur, when she was 25 years old, but Harriet was not married when she had the boy. More scandalousness. <laughs> she came to Park City where she worked as a seamstress and made her own clothes. One day, she was in a hurry to get dinner made for her husband, William, who was working at the Daly Mine. Harriet used coal oil to light the fire in the stove. So this was a little dangerous to use because it was extremely flammable. The oil can was too close to the fire and it exploded. Her dress caught on fire and she ran out of the house for help. Passerbys managed to help her get the fire extinguished, but it was too late. She was severely burned all over her body, and three days later, on September 19, 1892, she passed away. Yeah, and she's in the cemetery just alone. There's no other family by her. Right. They might have moved away after that. David and Joseph Northey arrived in Park City sometime about 1890. The two brothers came from England and were working the mines just like their uncle Richard was doing. David had been suffering from typhoid fever for quite some time and passed away on April 18, 1891 at the age of 21. The Reverend John Teffler spoke at the funeral services saying that he had visited him the night before and David said he was not afraid to die. He continued on saying his parents were good church members at the home and wished to impress upon young people the importance of being ready for death and the great hereafter. David was a member of the Odd Fellows and was laid to rest in their section of the cemetery. David's uncle was there to help lay him to rest, and his younger brother was on his way to Park City when he passed away. The sadness for the family does not end there. Joseph left for Park City on April 14, 1891, four days before David passed away. Joseph left for Park City on April 14, 1891, four days before David passed away. Joseph reached Park City, excited to see his brother and uncle, only to find out that David had been laid to rest just two weeks prior to him arriving. Joseph seemed to be in good health, but shortly after his arrival, he got dysentery. He did everything he could to fight the illness off and help from the local physician, but he was unable to win the battle. 
Joseph passed away on May 30th, 1891 at the age of 19. Their uncle was now faced with the undaunting task of burying another nephew. The parents were not there for either of the services. Yeah, I also wonder with the delay of Mill, if his parents got news that David had passed about the same time that Joseph passed away. Oh, yeah. Just a double whammy in their mailbox. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the two brothers lay side by side in the cemetery and share a headstone. Yeah, so on top of the headstone is a picture of hands shaking. Mm -hmm. And so when I approached it, I made sure to count the fingers to see if they had all five fingers, and they did. Yeah, I counted them as well. (laughs) We're in the habit of that now after finding a a marker that had six fingers. Yep. Yep. So that's a fun little game we play. (laughs) Cemetery games. (laughs) Is that going to be our next podcast? Nope, dad jokes are done, though. Oh, Well, Charles Tesley Parker was born on December 5th, 1851 in New York. He left home around 1879 and came to Park City where he lived and worked for 35 years. He was described as being one of the most careful engineers in Utah. He worked for the Dolly West Mine for 16 years where no accident of any kind was ever charged on him. Three weeks prior to him passing away, he was laid off from work because he was feeling sick. I thought that was so funny. You're sick, so we're going to fire you. (laughs) (laughs) The local doctors felt that he just needed some rest and a change of diet. As time went on, he was not improving. He and his wife traveled to Salt Lake to be seen by a different doctor who discovered that Charles was suffering from a tumor in his stomach. On April 2nd, 1915, at the age of 63, Charles passed away. His headstone has one of my favorite sayings on it. And something I think about every time I'm walking around the cemetery. Remember, friends, as you pass by, as you are now, so was I. As I am now, you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. Yeah, so this is actually kind of a good time to mention our new Patreon offerings because this makes me think of it. Right, yeah. So we spend a fair amount of time exploring cemeteries, as our uh, continuous listeners may know. Uh, We've always loved reading their epitaphs. So this has led to the curiosity of last words as well. So for our Patreon supporters, we're putting together some short episodes that brief the lives of various folks, famous or not, and what their last words when I can find them. So we already put out one and uh, we just recorded another one as Mm -hmm. well. So that'll be out here soon, probably a couple of them a month, something like that. Yep. So if you're interested in a little extra content and you can spare a few bucks a month, sign up for our Patreon. Yep. Link in the show notes and at (laughs) rebelatlarge.com. Well, Clara Monks Dunsmore was born on December 7th, 1893 in Midway, Utah, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. On December 26, 1917, she was married to James Dunsmore. The two of them lived together in Park City. The following year, Clara was diagnosed with influenza and unfortunately she got pneumonia. On December 12th, 1918, always remember 1918. (laughs) She passed away at the age of 25 in the home that she and James shared together. We now know today that Clara was an unfortunate victim of the Spanish flu. Yep. Anybody that died in 1918 died of the Spanish flu, I think. 99% (laughs) likely they died from that. (laughs) Yep. No natural causes that year. It was always the Spanish flu. Well, James was also sick from influenza as well as suffering from throat cancer. 
poor fellow. Mm -hmm. At the time of her passing, the newspapers wrote that he was doing better. Clara was laid to rest in the Glenwood Cemetery. James then moved into his parents' house while he continued his battle with throat cancer. The doctors in Park City performed two operations on him trying to remove the cancer. When they were unsuccessful, he went to Salt Lake for help. They performed another operation on him there and then advised him to go to Chicago for radium treatments. <laughs> yeah. Which we'll get into radium soon, one day. Mm -hmm. um, in September 1919, he left for Chicago. James sent letters home to his parents saying that the treatment was working and that it was going to make a well man out of him. I'm sure his skin looked great, too. You could say he was glowing. <laughs> Dad joke number two. <laughs> the family was shocked when a few months later they received news that James had passed away at the age of 31 on December December is terrible for this family. Mm -hmm. So on December 21st, 1919, James was born in Park City and his body was brought back to be laid to rest in the Glenwood Cemetery next to his wife and mother, Nellie. So Nellie and John, James's parents, were born in Scotland and came to Park City where John worked as an engineer. John and Nellie were married on Christmas Day in 1886. Why not? You've got the family together already, it sounds like, right? <laughs> well, Nellie had been suffering from dropsy for almost a year. We touched on dropsy earlier. Mm -hmm. The last three months of her life, she was confined to her bed where her mother also sat with her. On December 7th, 1908, at the age of 40 years, 11 months, she passed away. Prior to Nellie passing away, she lost two children. On August 20th, 1892, she gave birth to her son, John. He only lived for seven months when he passed away from pneumonia on March 20th, 1893. He was the first in the Dunsmore family to be laid to rest in the Glenwood Cemetery. On July 8th, 1900, John and Nellie welcomed Esther into the world. However, she unfortunately passed away on January 7th, 1903 from scarlet fever and is also in the Glenwood Cemetery. Tragedy would strike again for John when on November 2nd, 1926, his daughter Catherine passed away from measles. She was only 14 years old. On May 12th, 1938, at the age of 74, John passed away in Salt Lake. For 30 years, he lived without his wife and was brought back to Park City to join her, his two sons, two daughters, and daughter-in-law in the Glenwood Cemetery. Yeah, and he kept living. Yeah. For 30 years, I mean, that's a whole life for a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the next person we want to talk about has a sad story associated with it. They're all been sad, but this is a little bit tragic. It's kind of a unique sad story. Yeah. Well, Michael Patrick Horn was born in Tipperary, Ireland on July 12, 1837. We're unsure of when he came to Park City or what he did when he came to the area. One can only assume he came to work the mines. That's what it was at the time. Yeah. Uh, what we do know is that on September 1st, 1889, he passed away at the age of 52. His story does not end there. He's not a zombie. <laughs> uh, on July 5th, 2012, the Cheney family came to the cemetery so the father could practice some photo shooting. The cemetery has a beautiful landscape and provides for a great background. Their four-year-old son, Carson, was playing behind Michael Horn's headstone, and according to the Salt Lake Tribune, He was trying to make some other children laugh for the photos by pretending to be a leprechaun. Carson went behind the headstone and was poking his head out from behind it when suddenly the headstone fell on him. 
It took three men to lift the four-inch-thick, three-foot-tall marble headstone off of him. Unfortunately, his injuries were too much, and Carson passed away. Yeah, very, very tragic for this family, but it's also kind of a great reminder that when you're walking through these old cemeteries that are not maintained, Mm -hmm. you know, most cemeteries leave maintenance of the headstones to the family. So be aware as you walk around that not only is there the dangers of animals, you know, snakes, spiders, things like that. Mm -hmm. But you also have the danger of a headstone falling over. And I had never thought of that. And we've been to so many old cemeteries and like I've kind of touched some of them and they're a little wobbly, Mm -hmm. but I've never thought of it like falling over and causing that much damage to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It could break a leg or obviously kill somebody. Yeah. Well, let's change gears a bit and tell you about an old wild cowboy. Utah's had a few well-known rebel cowboys in its time, but one of them here isn't as well-known. He rests here in the Glenwood Cemetery. Patrick Coughlin may not have lived a life like Butch Cassidy, but he might have if you live long enough to get into a little bit more trouble. His folks, Ellen and Daniel, both came to the U.S. when they left their hometown of Ireland. Patrick was born in Massachusetts, and when he was just a boy, the family moved out west. On April 23rd of 1890, Daniel passed away from pneumonia. Patrick was just 16, and he started to uh, get into a little bit of trouble. (laughs) By the time he was 20, so just four years, he had spent some time in jail for allegedly shooting a man. He was eventually acquitted, but he did not stop living a life of theft and crime. Patrick and his friends, Fred George and Frank Kennedy, got an idea. a lot of first names going on there. Yeah, I know. Fred George and Frank Kennedy. That's two people, not four. (laughs) not four people. Fred George, Frank Kennedy. Uh, They got this great idea to steal some boxes of strawberries from a street peddler. The boys ran off with them and went up to the red light district where they sold them to a madam. Sheriff Harrington caught the boys and told them if they paid $20 each, they would let them off. Yeah, that 20 bucks back then would be just shy of 700 bucks today. Well, Frank paid him, but Fred and Patrick were not about to give up and give him the money. They probably didn't have 700 bucks on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even selling them, selling the strawberries, I don't think they would have got yeah, that much they money. They got a nickel for the strawberries, probably. Yeah. Well, Fred and Patrick stole some horses and they took off out of town to Salt Lake City. There they met a young man named Bruce. The three of them then headed towards the Uinta Reservation to work on a sheep farm. As the boys got closer to camp, they told Bruce that they were not going to work there, but they were going to steal some horses and take them to Wyoming so they could sell them. Bruce told them that he was not going to help them and wanted to go back to Salt Lake. Patrick and Fred then held Bruce at gunpoint, taking all of his belongings, and including his horse, <laughs> and made him walk back to Salt Lake. When Bruce arrived in town, he reported everything to the sheriff. Yeah, good for Bruce to have a little bit of an idea. Back then, stealing a horse is you get hanged for stealing a horse. There's no questions about it. Well, in the meantime, Sheriff Harrington was still chasing after the boys. He eventually caught up to them at a sheep camp. Patrick and Fred were sleeping in a wagon when Harrington approached them and began firing shots at them. Patrick picked up his rifle and fired a shot at Harrington, wounding him in the arm. The sheriff took off to Park City to get help, and Patrick and Fred headed to Wyoming. The two boys camped out for the night in a cabin just outside Echo Lake, just on the way at I-80 up to Wyoming. Uh, The following morning, the cabin was surrounded by a lawman. 
when Fred spotted Officer Caverly, he started shooting at him. Guns were going off and bullets were flying everywhere. When the shooting stopped, it was made known that Dawes had been killed by Patrick. Stagg was killed and Caverly was wounded. Caverly and Taylor took off for more ammo and back up. Patrick and Fred were on the run again. It was unsure of where the men were headed, so lawmen started to spread out all across Utah and Wyoming in search of the two. On the night of July 31st, word got to Sheriff in Salt Lake that the pair was spotted in Ogden, and they were headed to Salt Lake. A patrol wagon was sent towards Farmington, and along the way they passed the two on the road. Patrick and Fred then decided to get off the main road and head towards City Creek Canyon. The pair hid out in City Creek for two days with the help of Fred's family. On August 3rd, they set out on the run again. That night, they stopped at the third term inn and their identity was discovered. The two had no idea the people there knew who they were, and the following morning, they awoke to a posse of men there to arrest them. Well, Patrick gave himself up without a fight, and Fred followed suit. The two men were brought back to Ogden, Utah, where they were placed in jail. After the trial, Fred George was sentenced to life in prison, while Patrick was sentenced to execution by firing squad. Patrick was an arrogant young man. One night for dinner, they asked him what he would like to eat. He replied he would enjoy some... Dawes and stag meat and a steak of caverly. <laughs> His last meal was a whole chicken, and he tossed the bones aside, saying... Life is too short to pick bones. On his way to the execution site, he told the sheriff, You need not have no fear for me. You will never kill a gamer man than I am. <laughs> Pretty confident in himself there, huh? Yeah. December 15th, 1896, Patrick was taken three miles north of Woodruff and nine miles from Randolph to a gulch. Patrick was strapped to a chair, a blindfold placed over his head, and a piece of paper with a diamond in the center was pinned over his heart. The men put in charge of killing him were placed in a tent with holes large enough for the barrels of their gun to stick out. The call was made and the shots rang out. At 10.20 a.m., Patrick Coughlin was dead at the age of 23. He was placed by his father in the cemetery. Well, the last person we want to share with you is Alexander Smith. He was born on December 16, 1842 in Iowa. He grew up living and working on the family farm. When he was old enough, he fought in the Civil War on the Union side. After the war, Alexander wandered around a bit and ended up making his way to Park City, where he arrived in 1870. He worked odd jobs around town until he saved up enough money to purchase a lot on Main Street, where he opened a livery stable. Over the next 11 years, he worked hard expanding his business and making a name for himself. Alexander eventually got into horse racing. Back then, the closest track was in Salt Lake. He and some friends got together and opened a straight track in Deer Valley just outside of Park City. There were drag racing horses. <laughs> straight tracks. Quarter mile, I bet. It's so funny to think about. And they're like throwing the parachute out behind him <laughs> on the horse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> sure that's what happened. You think so? I'm certain of it. Okay. Well, in February of 1883, he was married to Phoebe Jane Penbrook. The last days of his life, he was suffering from rheumatic fever of the heart. Not a lot of people knew about it, so it came as a surprise when on July 13th, 1885, he passed away at the age of 45. Alexander was the first person laid to rest in the Glenwood Cemetery. Every business on Main Street shut down for the funeral. 
They had two brass bands playing for him, and it is reported that he had the largest procession in Park City at the time. Kind of fun. Mm -hmm. His wife, Phoebe, went on to remarry and moved away to Salt Lake City. Alexander is in a pot alone with no family close by. He's kind of in the back section where they have placed a few little birdhouses and some trees Mm -hmm. to kind of bring in the the birds. But it's sad he's just alone. Well, after visiting the Glenwood Cemetery, we stopped by the Park City Cemetery. It's older, mm-hmm. but it's still the city cemetery, so it's still being used. They kind of had the old section out on the, uh, I guess that would have been the west side of the yeah. grounds. And then as it expanded off to the east, it got a little bit more modern and crowded for sure. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful in its own right, but nothing like Glenwood at all. The lawns there are maintained. There are very few trees and the grounds are pretty crowded, just not nearly as cool. Yeah. I mean, we were reading like you can't even buy a plot in the Park City Cemetery anymore unless they have like all these regulations and everything. And Mm -hmm. Have to be a resident and all that kind of stuff, which not too many people are permanent residents up there. No. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we've been to the Glenwood Cemetery twice, and I don't doubt that we'll go visit there again. Mm Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. The trees provided enough shade that you can spend hours there in peace and quiet. I think the one time we went, it was um, either early spring or late fall. Yeah, so we were getting the, rained on. Yeah. So I feel like it was early spring and there wasn't the thick grass like there is when we went just this last time. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time we go, it looks different. So it's fun. Yeah. That first time we did a lot of find a grave updates and GPS locations. So it was a lot yeah. easier to get up to the headstones. Yeah. This one we had to... Trudge through a lot of the stickers and thistles and all <laughs> that to get to them. Yep. All right. Well, that kind of wraps that up, I think. Yeah. Uh, we got all the dad jokes out of the way. and You think? I I, I think we did a lot. Yeah. Oh, because I have one. I thought of it today. Oh, you thought of it even? Well, it came to me. Okay. Um, so. Our uh, Patreon that we had just done on uh, Sir Hitchcock because uh-huh. he died when he was 80. So right. I thought of this one. You want me to share it with you? <sighs> Please, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Even Marley's asleep. She's excited? Yeah. Okay. So what did the pirate say on his 80th birthday? R. I'm 80. I'm 80. I'm 80. <laughs> I'm 80. <laughs> Do you get it? I get it. Okay. Yes, I got it. <laughs> if yeah. you read it, it doesn't make sense. But then when you say I'm 80, you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm sick. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> All righty then. Well, there you have it. <sighs> I'm 80. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us once again. If you want to stay up to date with us, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. We post photos of our adventures on our website. Rebelatlarge.com. And then you'll also find links to our Patreon, merch store, email, and other social deals. Indeed. All right. We'll talk to you all here in a couple weeks. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road.
1885, Edward, how do you say his last name again? David and Joseph Northley. Northy? Yeah. Northy. Uh, it needs to say uncle. Patrick Coughlin. Coughlin? Coughlin. The last days of his life, he was suffering. Sorry. His body was blown into atoms. 